I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiber Fueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. You know, so many times when I've raised the issue of what happens to animals in the food system, people say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. And it's because it is upsetting. So, you know, we have to walk, I think, a very delicate balance between, you know, creating a situation where people will not put up a wall, uh, but will instead be open to listening and learning and understanding. And that's one thing that sanctuaries do, I believe, is that we create this positive interaction with people and other animals. And when somebody sees an animal who's now been allowed to live, mm. I think it's easier to hear where they came from. And then in that way, you can talk about the abuse of system. Season three of the Plant Strong podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season, we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get Plant Strong together. Fueling for performance is something that I am intimately familiar with, whether I am recharging after my morning master's swim here in Austin, or if I'm gearing up for a big family hike through the green belt, or frankly, if I'm just got a huge day at the Plant Strong World headquarters, oats are always a key ingredient in my morning bowl. If you haven't tried our new Plant Strong granolas, you're missing out. We just launched these four guilt-free flavors in June, and members of the community have been literally gobbling them up. They come in classic oatmeal raisin, all-American apple pie, tahini chocolate chip, and crisp mixed berry crumble, which incidentally is what I had this morning over my Rips Big Bowl cereal. 
All are handmade in small batches. They're date sweetened, no added sugar, oil-free, and 100% whole grain. Simply toss a bag in your backpack and you'll be always prepared when hunger strikes. Simply head over to our website at plantstrongfoods.com and pick up a sampler pack of these four all-new varieties while they're available. Can't wait to hear which one is your favorite. Now, Another announcement, if you haven't heard, our 10th anniversary plant stock celebration is online and on sale. Grab a friend and join us virtually from September 8th to the 12th as we honor all the progress that's been made over the last decade with the science, with the food, and with the movement as a whole. It is nothing short of phenomenal what has happened. This will be the perfect way to invite that family member who desperately needs a green leafy intervention to come take a drink from the fire hose and learn everything they can about the why and the how of plant strong living. And in honor of our 10th anniversary and as part of my mission to reach as many people as possible with the good news about plants, group tickets are just $10 a piece when you buy five, 10 bucks gets you access to life-changing information to help start or strengthen your Plant Strong journey. Our lineup this year includes the ultimate Brock stars. Can you say T. Colin Campbell, Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Michael Clapper, Christy Funk, Will Bolshewitz, the Scherzeis, the list goes on and on and on. Don't miss out. Visit plantstrong.com slash plantstock to sign up today. Hello, my cruciferous cousins. If you are new to this Plant Strong way of life or you're just dipping your toes into the exploration, I think you're going to find today's show transformative. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and I want to welcome you to the Plant Strong podcast. Since 1986, this man has made it his mission to raise awareness about the abuses of factory farming and the devastation that our agriculture and food system has had on animals, workers, and those of us who consume the food. I know it's not a comfortable topic and none of us want to experience the horrors of these factory farms and slaughterhouses, but here's the thing. For as driven as he is, you will also never meet someone more gentle, kind, loving and empathetic as Gene Bauer. He is a special soul and as founder of Farm Sanctuary has had a hand in providing refuge, care and healing for thousands of farm animals who otherwise would not have made it. Gene is a beacon of light whose purpose is centered on not just providing sanctuary for these gorgeous animals, but also without judgment getting people back in touch with their humanity and empathy and aligning their actions with their values. That is a very beautiful thing. Today's conversation is uplifting and heartwarming as much as it is educational and powerful. So open your hearts to one of the biggest hearts I know, Gene Bauer, founder of Farm Sanctuary. All right, gang, here I am with Gene Bauer, 
I, I want to welcome Gene to the Plant Strong podcast. You've never been on the Plant Strong podcast. So I haven't. It's, so it's, it's great to see you. The last time that we were together virtually was you were a participant, or rather, I should say, a keynote speaker at last year's Plant Stock event. Yes. And just hit an absolute home run. You know, before that, I, I know you've traveled through Austin a few times and on your 25th anniversary tour of, uh, of Farm Sanctuary, you, you came here, you came to one of our, our monthly potlucks in the old VW van. Right. That was so fun. And you had a, this great crowd there. And, you know, we were able to talk about the issues. It was really wonderful to be hosted at this event that you did. And, and then also we did something together at Whole Foods and we've just, you know, and over the, and there was also this, this uh, thing we spoke on when we had to get back from overseas, which was quite an eventful return <laughs> journey yeah, on a plane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been, it's been great getting to know you. And then of course you've written you know, several books, one of which your, your most recent living the farm sanctuary life. Uh, your, your co-author was Gene Stone, who obviously has helped me with, with, uh, with some of my books. So we have that connection as well, yes, which, is, yes. which is really neat. But so you are the founder and the um, president, co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary. And you founded this 35 years ago. Is that right? That is correct. In 1986. 1986. And tell me, Gene, what, so what inspired you to, to be the founder of Farm Sanctuary 35 years ago? Well, you know, at the time, we didn't really have any sort of notion about how the organization would grow and how there would be other farm sanctuaries around the world, you know, like we see today. But back in 1986, it was really a, a simple instinct that there are bad things happening to animals in the factory farming industry. We need to investigate this, document it, and expose it. So that's how we started. And during our investigations, we found living animals literally thrown on piles of dead animals. So we started rescuing them. And that's how the sanctuaries began. And you know, during our investigations, you know, one animal led to another animal, and then we realized we needed a farm. Because back in those days, we were operating out of a, a donated row house in Wilmington, Delaware. So we didn't even have a farm. Yeah. And so our adopt a farm animal program began very quickly because we would rescue animals, rehabilitate them, and then find a home to place them. And uh, so many of the things that we do today were inspired by what we were doing in the early days, you know, rescuing animals. Uh, and telling their stories and then adopting them out and encouraging people to see them as friends, not food. But what we've also come to realize is that we need to change the system. We cannot rescue our way out of this problem of factory farming. We need to change the system. So, and, and we've always, we've done that as well over the years, but we're increasingly now focusing in that area. I want to, I want to go back even farther than that, because to me, it's, it, it is amazing what you have launched with Farm Sanctuary. And now there's, you know, Farm Sanctuaries all over the world that I think were inspired by what you launched in 1986. And I'm just wondering, like, so growing up, were you super empathetic? And did you always love animals? And did you always like, have a, a certain sensitivity uh, that, that kind of helped guide you down this path? 
Yeah, and I think I, I've always been pretty sensitive, right? And very much upset to see harm done to others. And I grew up in a very conservative Catholic family. So I had certain like lessons hammered into me about helping the least of these and being responsible. And, and sometimes those lessons can be a little harsh. Sometimes they can be, you know, I think beautiful. Uh, but, you know, for me, it was just growing up, seeing harm around me uh, and ultimately not wanting to participate in the harm that humans are causing to the planet. And, you know, one of my early memories as a kid was when this beautiful oak tree across the street from my parents' house in the Hollywood Hills was cut down. And it just sort of viscerally bothered me, this beautiful old tree that had been a presence for so long since I was a baby, just cut down so that the neighbor's house could be made bigger. Yeah. And it just kind of bothered me, you know, and also seeing wild animals hit by cars in the neighborhood, uh, seeing the violence that humans do to other humans on television, you know, during, you know, like wars and things like this. And I basically just didn't want to be a cog in a wheel of a system causing so much harm. So I started getting involved with environmental groups, with human rights organizations. I ultimately learned about factory farming and how it causes harm to people, to the earth, and to animals. And so I went vegan in 1985. Uh, and in 1986, started investigating places to see firsthand what was happening. And that's how Farm Sanctuary ultimately started through our investigations and our rescues. How old were you when you started becoming an activist, uh, like joining environmental groups and stuff like that? Are we talking like in your teens or, or later? A little bit in high school. Uh -huh. uh, so I guess that would be teens. And the first time I had an inkling that I was eating a dead animal was when I was in high school and I had come home and my mother had made a chicken dinner. And so I also, I saw this bird on the plate with the legs and wings attached on his or her back. And I was, you know, repulsed by the idea of eating this animal who had been a living creature. So that was my first inkling. And I didn't eat meat for a while after that, but that memory sort of faded. And then I got back to regular habits, like, you know, everybody around me was eating meat. So I just fell back into it. But then in 1985, I traveled around the country. So I was about 22, 23 years old at the time. And I started meeting activists. And to me, that's when the activism really kicked up. It was when I started getting out and aligning with and working with and volunteering with other activist organizations. You know, prior to that, I, I guess I would say I dabbled in it. Uh, but after 85, I was full steam ahead. Yeah. I can't even imagine how much you have learned about being a effective activist over the last, you know, since you embarked on this <laughs> over 35 years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. A lot of trial and error experiences. And, yeah. and, you know, so much of, I think being an effective advocate is actually paying attention and recognizing the impacts of your actions. And, you know, sometimes passionate activists can be just so focused on, a wrong that needs to be addressed and they just hammer it full steam ahead and sometimes turn people off. So one of Farm Sanctuary's organizational values, and it's something that I feel very strongly is, is effective, is to speak to people where they are on their own journeys mm. and ultimately to try to find common ground and to build from there. You know, instead of, you know, back 
when I was a younger activist, for example, if somebody told me they stopped eating veal, you know, and veal is, you know, young calves that are taken from their mothers at birth and chained in crates that are two feet wide for their whole life. So a lot of awareness was raised about the veal industry. And some people said, I don't eat veal anymore. Back in the day, what I might have said is that, well, you know, the veal industry comes from the dairy industry. So if you really care, you shouldn't drink cow's milk. You know, that would have been a, a, a truthful statement, but it would have not likely engaged and inspired the person who has shared that they're trying to do better. And today, what I would say is that it's great that you've stopped eating veal and celebrate that positive step. And then also at some point, bring in the dairy thing, but first celebrate, find that common ground. Uh, and then build from there, um, yeah. as opposed to right away saying, well, that's not good enough, which turns people off. You mentioned that you, like fairly early on, just to educate yourself, you started investigating kind of the hor horrific nature of, the, of what was going on at the farms, the stockyards, the, um, the slaughterhouses. That to me is so indicative of how much passion you had to try and you know right these wrongs but what did like what were some of the things that you saw if you don't mind sharing um because yeah. to me that's you know going in and maybe undercover or however you would do it that to me is requires such a level of commitment and courage and uh and just like cojones <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know well back when I was doing this, I went to hundreds of places and I would not get a job there. Like investigators in recent years actually get a job and they work in these places. Yeah. So that's a little different where you're actually participating in some of these really horrible cruelties. But for me, I would go in, document the conditions and get out basically. And, you know, this would be at all hours of the day. And in some cases, um, you know, I would be confronted by people who worked at these places and those were challenging circumstances. You know, for example, um, I investigated the Hallmark Slaughterhouse in Southern California in Chino, which um, in 2008 became the site of the largest ever beef recall in US history because of the way they were mistreating down cows. I was there in the 1990s, and a lot of that work actually set the stage for what happened in 2008, but I was in there once um, with a rental car and a camera out the window um, under a bunch of things so it wasn't visible to document how downed cows were being dragged off of trucks, left in this unloading area, um, and then eventually they were being slaughtered. So as I was sitting there in the car, I all of a sudden noticed I was surrounded by like five guys. And then one guy reaches in and grabs the keys out of my car. And, you know, they're, they're saying, what are you doing here? And, and I, and the first thing I said is maybe you should call the police, you know, and they <laughs> did. Cause you know, I was in a pretty vulnerable position there and the police came and ultimately basically, you know, told the guys to give me my keys back and I drove away. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been other situations where, you know, I've ended up in a police car when like a veal farmer in Wisconsin uh, called the cops. Um, and so there have been some pretty hairy circumstances, but I've felt that it was really important to see firsthand what was happening, yeah. to be able to document and speak with authority on the conditions. And so that's why I started doing this. And um, I'm really glad that I did. And then 
Later on, I actually went to Cornell University and got a master's degree in agricultural economics, yeah. which included courses in animal science. So this was a, another form of investigation and undercover work where I wasn't announcing that I was a vegan, but I was there listening to and observing the indoctrination that occurs with young pre-vet students and other people who you know, might care about animals, but once they enter into the system, yeah, their kind, their their empathy is somewhat um, diminished. Uh, and some people who who cannot go along with causing such harm leave the programs, but those who go along with it tend to be hardened and become less empathetic to other animals. Yeah, you've got a quote that that um, that I remember, and uh, it goes that this the, just kind of the way the whole infrastructure and system is set up today yeah. undermines our empathy, which is a part of our humanity. And I find that to be so absolutely beautiful. And somehow or another, we lose, we lose sight of our humanity because we just become like a, a part of the system. And we're not, we're not thinking for ourselves. We don't see what, what you and others see. And to me, you know, what you're doing to be able to open people's eyes to see the, the, the horror that is going on all around us that we've just kind of turned a blind eye to. It's a crying shame. It is. It is. And, you know, I think most people are humane and yeah. most people would rather not work in a slaughterhouse. And, you know, it's a system that is not aligned with our humanity, not aligned with our compassion. And I think sometimes people who work in this industry um, may feel that they have no choice other than to do it. Um, sometimes as ways to sort of validate their actions and sort of to rationalize what they're doing, uh, they might even treat animals more cruelly, sort of to make the point that these animals don't matter. So sometimes you actually see sadistic behavior in these, in these places. But you also have consumers who are unwittingly participating and don't really look and don't want to know. You know, so many times when I've raised the issue of what happens to animals in the food system, people say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. And it's because it is upsetting. So, you know, we have to walk, I think, a very delicate balance between, you know, creating a situation where people will not put up a wall. Uh, but will instead be open to listening and learning and understanding. And that's one thing that sanctuaries do, I believe, is that we create this positive interaction with people and other animals. And when somebody sees an animal who's now been allowed to live, mm. I think it's easier to hear where they came from. And then in that way, you can talk about the abusive system, you know, and then you can talk about the possibilities for solutions. I think another reason that people oftentimes don't want to hear it's because they don't know what they can do instead. So we're talking about how bad the system is. People are participating in it. They believe that they don't have a choice. And that's where the work you are doing is so important in terms of showing people what you can do instead. And, and that I think is critically important. And, and with my second book, that was a big part of it is the how-to. Uh, so sometimes the how-to can be even more important than the why-to in terms of just creating change. Yeah. And, and when we close out this, podcast today, I want you to talk about some actionable steps that, that right. people can take. But be before we do that, you must be super excited because you guys opened up your doors again just a couple yeah. of days ago, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how fantastic does that feel to have 
people being able to go in and see the animals and, and experience what you've been building for 35 years. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a sanctuary, right? Yeah. And who doesn't want to be in a sanctuary? And, and it stands in stark contrast to a slaughterhouse, which is where all the animals would have gone if they didn't come to the sanctuary. So you know, it's beautiful to see. It's very exciting. Uh, people who work on the farm are very excited to welcome visitors. And the animals also are excited. Now, some more than others, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it, and, and for the animals, they can choose if they want to come and hang out with people or if they want to go further away in the pasture, they're free to do that as well. And are there, are there some animals that are more excited to see humans? Like, like I'll just throw out something like donkeys. Are donkeys more excited to see humans or cows or ducks? Or is it just depend upon the individual? It, it largely depends upon the individual, but, you know, there are some kind of tendencies among the species, you know, and and, and also these are social animals. So they start to learn that they're in a safe place. So mm -hmm. some animals like sheep, for example, who might tend to be somewhat shy of to people get to know that at farm sanctuary, they get petted. So we have sheep that actually will paw at you like a cat or a dog, <laughs> so you pet them. Yeah. And so it, it really depends on individuals, but there are some general tendencies, but also there's a social context. And at Farm Sanctuary, the animals know they're in a safe place. So generally speaking, they welcome visitors. Yeah. I, I would love for you to talk about some of the animals and share a couple of the stories of the animals that are on, uh, on at, or at Far Farm Sanctuary. But I, I want you to start with, to me, part of your origin story was, you know, you would go to the uh, Grateful Dead concerts and you'd sell vegan hot dogs. <laughs> yes. At, at some point. Uh, which I absolutely love. And at some point you found Hilda. Yes. And Hilda yes. kind of started it all. Can you let everybody know who Hilda is? Yes, absolutely. So uh, in the early days, we had our Volkswagen van, the one I drove through Austin and met you with. Uh, and we used to use that van to do investigations of factory farms, stockyards, and slaughterhouses. And we also used that van to sell vegan hot dogs at Grateful Dead shows. And that's how we funded Farm Sanctuary in the early days. It's also how we started doing education uh, and discussing the reality of animal agriculture with the general public. But the way we found Hilda was that um, we went to Lancaster Stockyards in Pennsylvania, and this is in 1986. At the time, it was the largest stockyard east of Chicago. It's a place where animals are brought and trucked from hundreds of miles away to mm. be sold at an auction. And then they're purchased either by other farmers or in many cases by slaughterhouses. Uh, but behind the stockyard was a dead pile because animals die in transit. Uh, oftentimes they're crowded very tightly. And so in addition to going through the stockyard and observing conditions, we would always stop by the dead pile behind the stockyard. And on this one day in August of 1986, we saw dead cows, dead pigs, dead sheep and maggots, they were so thick you could hear them buzzing. Uh, and off of this dead pile, a sheep lifted her head. And so we were surprised by this and thought she was probably in really bad shape, the fact she was on this dead pile. So we called a veterinarian thinking she would have to be euthanized and loaded her into the van, brought her to the veterinarian. And as he started examining her, she started perking up and then she stood yeah. up. 
Uh, she had just passed out, I think, because of heat exhaustion. She was in a crowded truck. It was a hot summer day coming from upstate New York into Pennsylvania. And then probably what happened is the truck driver, uh, you know, backed up to the stockyard, unloaded the sheep that walked off. And then there were some bodies in there of dead sheep uh, and Hilda, who was unconscious. And he probably just drove around back, unloaded the bodies on the dead pile. And Hilda was one of them and she wasn't dead. And we came by the next day and, and, and we rescued her. And she lived with us for more than 10 years uh, at Farm Sanctuary. And she, we now have a, a, a memorial stone in her, where she's buried in the middle of the sanctuary. So Hilda was our first rescue. And in addition to rescuing her she, and, and rescuing the sanctuary work, she also helped us to, do, uh, to launch this No Downers campaign mm -hmm. because Hilda was a downed animal, an animal too sick to walk. And every year, animals too sick to walk were being dragged onto trucks, taken to slaughter, and used for human food. So we started campaigning and advocating for policies to prevent animals too sick to walk from being transported and slaughtered for food. And so that campaign is still with us today, in fact. And we were able to get a federal prohibition on slaughtering down cows for human food, which is how Hallmark ultimately ended up getting in trouble in California. Um, we are now petitioning to prevent down pigs from being used for, for human food. So that campaign continues. But in addition to rescuing her and educating people, uh, Hilda helped to kind of start this whole No Downers campaign and the advocacy work we do. Wow. And uh, speaking of, you know, um, campaigns and advocacy work, didn't you meet just yesterday with, with Cory Booker? You know, I didn't meet with him yesterday, but I've met with him from time okay. to time. Yeah. And just yesterday, Cory Booker introduced the Farm System Reform Act to try to combat factory farming. And I posted an Instagram picture, but that was from a couple, yeah. of, a couple of years earlier. Got it. Got it. That is so fantastic. Yeah. So have you met Corey, obviously? Yeah. And, and I've met him a few times. Yeah. And he's, it's amazing to have somebody that is so passionate, that, who is a vegan advocate. And he recently became a member of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Mm. So I think he will be able to use that position to advocate for some policies, hopefully to combat factory farming and promote a healthier, more just plant-based food system. Yeah. Bravo to Corey. Bravo, man. But it's a, it's a heavy lift. You know, I mean, this industry is so deeply entrenched Oh yeah. and factory farms get billions of dollars every year. But if we can start tilting a few million here and a few million there towards plant-based and local sustainable agriculture, that's, I think, how change happens. It's incremental. But, but yeah, so he introduced the Farm System Reform Act and is a, a, a major champion in Washington, D.C. You talk about on, on your website, Speaking of which, your website, of all you listeners, you need to go visit farmsanctuary.org. It is, it is fantastic. You guys have done a spectacular job with that website. But you know, you you on there, you talk about how. Well, let me ask you because I don't want to be the one to share it. But how many animals around the world annually are basically slaughtered for food? It's something like 60 or 70 billion land animals. And when you start talking about fish, it's in the trillions. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's an extractive industry. It's, it's bad for animals. It's also bad for the earth. You know, in order to feed that many farm animals, we're destroying the planet. Um, in the U.S. alone, 10 times more land is used for animal agriculture 
as opposed to plant-based agriculture. Uh, we're cutting down rainforests in order to grow soy to feed animals. Um, so what we're doing is extremely destructive. It's, it's inefficient and it causes harm to all of us. You know, um, there was a statistic I saw not long ago that is shocking in terms of life on earth. If you looked at all the mammals living on earth, 96% are either humans or farm animals. Only 4% of the mammals living on earth live in the wild. Mm -hmm. and, and we're losing species. So we're losing biodiversity. And when we cut down rainforests and destroy ecosystems, that's one of the results. In the case of birds, 70% uh, are domesticated, mostly chickens. Uh, and in fact, you know, scientists tell us we're now living in the Anthropocene era, which is a, an era dominated by humanity. And one of the, a couple of the things we're going to see in the fossil record in millions of years are plastic and chicken bones because of the way we're uh, living and the sort of things we're producing. So I'm hopeful that in addition to concerns about animal suffering, there will be increasing recognition of the ecological harm that this system causes and also the, the harm to workers, to consumers and to our humanity, both biologically, but also I would say emotionally and, and maybe even spiritually. When we cause so much harm to others um, and we start rationalizing it, we do lose our empathy. And, and again, that is, I think, a very important part of our humanity. Well, you also talk about how, and you mentioned this in spades, but how it hurts our planet. And specifically what, what I think nobody can deny in 2021 is to the extent that climate change is here, it is real, and it is pretty nasty. Oh. I just saw a statistic. This is probably about three weeks ago. You know, Salesh Rao from yes. Stanford? Climate healers, I think. Climate right? healers. Yeah. Yes. Well, Stanford, and I can't remember who they partnered with, but they did a, a study to find out what percent of global greenhouse gas emissions are actually coming from animal agriculture. You know, in the past, we've heard numbers from the World Watch Institute and the World Bank that it's anywhere between 15% to as high as 51%. This new study shows that between the life cycle and the supply chain and all these things, 82%, 82%. So we- Insane. So we cannot abolish animal agriculture fast enough. Absolutely right? agree. Absolutely I mean, agree. Otherwise, uh, as a species, and you said we're entering, what is this called? The what? The we're, Anthropocene era. The Anthropocene, the Anthropocene era will not be much longer. <laughs> no, no, not for us. I mean, I think the earth will ultimately somehow continue on, but in a potentially in a very different form. Yeah. But uh, no, the harm we're causing to other animals ultimately is gonna cause harm, is causing harm to us, you know, in the immediate term with heart attacks, but in the longer term in terms of species survival. And, um, and also it's just so much more beautiful to have forests on the planet and diverse species of animals and plants that we live with, uh, but we are destroying these. And then we're domesticating and mass producing billions of animals confined in factory farms, right? Who produce enormous amounts of waste that is often destroying 
you know, the health of citizens in neighborhoods, oftentimes people of color, you know, so it, there's also um, environmental racism connected to this. If you look at the workers, people who work in slaughterhouses, oftentimes people without many resources or many opportunities, uh, they, they are also exploited in the system. So it's a massive system of oppression and we need to create solutions. And so I think we need to speak about the bad things, call them out, but then also change the system uh, to enable people to live in ways that are healthier, I think more aligned with their own values, because I think most people do not like the cruelty of factory farming or slaughterhouses, and also eat food that makes us, that nourishes us, instead of eating food that makes us sick. I mean, if you think about how we're feeding ourselves and living on the planet, it's completely irrational and harmful. And so just really stepping back and trying to be able to have those kinds of conversations about living in a way that is aligned with our values that we feel good about and that's also aligned with our interests and i think yeah. if we frame these in that way it's pretty hard for people to disagree you know there might be some rationalizations about oh we've done this forever but you know that rationalization could apply to lots of really bad things um and so just because we've done something doesn't mean we need to keep doing it and and i think sometimes things have to get really bad before people wake up and maybe we're there now i hope i hope so too um, so you, you, you told us about Hilda. I'd, I'd love to know about a, a few of the other animals and their stories. And you guys have a uh, adopt an animal program at, at Farm Sanctuary as well. And so who are, who are some of the animals that, that our listeners could adopt? Uh, and uh, what are their stories, some of their stories? Well, I think that a good way to do this is just go to the yeah. website, you know, farmsanctuary.org, and there's information on animals people can adopt. And, you know, I visit the farm occasionally, but I actually wasn't there during a lot of COVID, and yeah. I just got back recently. But I, I can tell you a couple of the my kind of personal experiences with, with some of the animals at the sanctuary. And, you know, one that I often remember is Opie, who was a calf uh, who was born on a dairy farm. And he was sent to the stockyard on the day he was born uh, to be sold because he was a male born on a dairy and male calves are not useful to dairy farms. And he was a newborn. He was very frail. He was still wet from afterbirth and he fell in an alleyway and he was just left there to die. Um, he was a crumpled heap on the ground. And so I asked the stockyard worker what was going on with the calf. And he just matter of factly said, well, I've got to bury him later today. I said, well, what if I take him off your hands? And he said, sure, go ahead. So I took the calf to a nearby veterinarian yeah. and she started examining him. His temperature was so low, it would not read on the thermometer. Uh, she said, this calf, it makes no economic sense to care for this animal. Why, why are you wasting your time? And so I pushed back and said, you know, to me, this is not an economic unit. This is an individual. I want to do what I can to help him. So she finally gave him intravenous fluids and I brought it back to the sanctuary and watched over him 24 hours a day. And it, as time went, the, the light started coming into his eyes because they had been sunken in and he was almost comatose. So there started to be a little sparkle in his eye, was able to lift his head. Then he was eventually able to stand and able to take a bottle. I was feeling really good about the progress he was making, but he really wasn't thriving. He seemed a little bit depressed. And I was wondering what was what was missing. Mm -hmm. And then I thought he needs to be with his people. He needs to be with the cows. So I brought him up to the cow barn and I put him in a pen there and the other cows came and mooed and welcomed him. And he perked right up. 
And so it's it really showed me that these are social animals and that they are impacted by and affected by their environment. And this was probably the first time that Opie uh, was in an environment where cows were friendly and felt safe and were able to express themselves and to socialize in healthy and positive ways, you know. So that was one of those stories that was just, you know, I love telling because it speaks about just how they're disregarded in the industry and how they're such social animals and are very much influenced by their social environment, similar to how people are influenced by our social environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had an interesting thing happen. We were just in Wisconsin on vacation. We were staying in a little um, 900 square foot little cabin next to this little lake. And the loons and the bald eagles and just the, the myriad amount of birds were, it was incredible. One morning we woke up and there was a little morning dove, a little bait, maybe, I don't know how old it was, but it had a, a kind of a hurt wing and a hurt right leg. And so my two daughters, uh, Sophie and Hope, they took it and they got a shoebox. They made a, you know, a nest in there and flowers and they were, you know, wa- giving it water and they ground up seeds and f- looked on the internet to see what could they feed this, you know, little morning dove. And we had it for three days, three days, and it was trying to get better. It ended up dying uh, one night when we were sleeping, but the, the amount of c- compassion and empathy and wanting this little morning dove to, to get better was so riveting and so profound. And, you know, when it died, we just talked about the circle of life and how absolutely unfortunate it was. And, but they did everything they could. It's such a beautiful thing, right? To see this sort of empathy and care. Yeah, no, it it was a beautiful thing. And then we, and then we had a a service where we, where where we, we named the little morning dove Sonny and we put Sonny on top of a bonfire and cremated him. And then we all went around in a circle and said some, 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 some things about Sonny. And then we had a little burial and we made a little gravestone and put, you know, Sonny. And then we didn't know when it was born, but the, but put the, the death uh, date of Sonny and then a great bird. <laughs> but it was, yeah, you know, it, it, it just made me think, especially, you know, knowing I was going to interview you today. I mean, the amount of, uh, light that just came into our little world, just over sunny, just in three days and seeing the girls hold sunny and, you know, sleep, not sleep with sunny, but basically take care of sunny is like, you would not believe. Um, it made me think, oh my gosh, the amount of joy and gratification that you and everybody at farm sanctuary must get because you're doing such fabulous work. Yeah. Is just bountiful. <laughs> it- I couldn't agree more. It's bountiful. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. And it's a win-win, right? Helping other animals, watching them heal is so nourishing to our souls, right? So it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, and getting to know these other animals as friends, not food, that's a big part of Farm Sanctuary's message. And, you know, we live on this planet with many other people, many other animals, and to try to create relationships that are based on mutuality as opposed to relationships based on extraction. And when it comes to farm animals, they are among the most abused creatures on the planet. Yeah. Um, and when somebody is abused by somebody with more power, 
that abused individual is oftentimes victim denigrated. You know, abusers denigrate their victims. So that's, you know, the, the world we deal with in terms of how farm animals are regarded. And just as an example, you know, being called a turkey is not a compliment, right? So people are called or being called a pig is not a compliment, right? So these are subtle ways mm. that one person might criticize another person while at the same time implying and perpetuating this criticism of farm animals mm. who are who have done nothing to deserve such a negative stereotype, you know? And, and by the way, on pigs, you know, they're very clean animals. They will not go to the bathroom where they sleep. And one of the early animals we rescued, for example, was, was Charlie, who's a pig. And uh, he came from Lancaster Stockyards. He was too sick to walk a downed animal. So we rescued him. We were rehabilitating him. And at the time we were living in a little row house in Wilmington, Delaware, with a little shed in the back attached to the kitchen. And so at night, you know, he'd sleep in his shed. And uh, I remember some nights he would bang on the kitchen door to come in. And the reason he did that was because he did not want to go to the bathroom in his bedroom. Wow. And so he'd, we'd open the door, he'd walk in, we put a bucket under him, he would pee in the bucket. And so <laughs> he, and then he went back to his bed. So these animals, you know, they have these inclinations, you know, to, to live in a way that is not harmful, you know, sleeping in your own urine and feces is not healthy. And in factory farms, they don't have a choice. You know, they're confined in crates and they live on these slatted floors and they're in these, you know, in these warehouses with the urine and feces smells that are horrible, but they would not choose that. And if given the agency and the opportunity, they would, you know, live in a clean, healthy environment. Yeah. Pig, pigs are so phenomenal. Actually growing up, we had four different pet pigs over wow. the span of maybe 10 years and we loved every one of them. <laughs> you know, a pig's eyes are a lot like a person's eyes. Yeah. You know, and I think Winston Churchill said something like a dog looks up to people, a cat looks down to people, but a pig will look you straight in the eye mm -hmm. and they do have a very human eye. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let people know if, if they want to visit one of the farm sanctuaries, there's two of them, right? And wh where are they located? That's right. We have one sanctuary in Watkins Glen, New York. It's a beautiful part of the state. It's the Finger Lake. So there's waterfalls, there's wineries, there's, it's a gorgeous part of the state. We're next door to the state forest. So Watkins Glen, New York, we have day visits and we're going to also soon be opening up our overnight accommodations in Watkins Glen. Overnight accommodations. I was on your website. I saw these little tiny houses. They are so charming. Oh, they're beautiful. I was just up there before the tour season opened. I was able to spend a week or two up there and uh, there's a porch. So you wake up, you sit on the porch and see the pigs coming out into their pasture. The, the tiny houses are amazing. We also uh, have bed and breakfast cabins and, and it's a wonderful place to stay. Uh, so how many, how many people can it accommodate like any, any one night? Yeah, well, each tiny house has like a, a bedroom and then a little front area where there's a, a, a couch. So maybe four people per tiny house. And there's three of those. Okay. And then we also have three bed and breakfast cabins that are more rustic. Uh, the bathroom's in the barn right next to them. Uh, and those each have two beds. So those can maybe also accommodate four yeah. people each. Right. And, and if I want to go, 
can you just show up or is there like, you have to get a ticket? Is there a waiting list? How does that work? Yeah. Now we're doing it with like an online signup. And I think, so for people who want to visit our farm in upstate New York or in Acton, which is near Los Angeles, you can go to our website, farmsanctuary.org. And we're doing tickets, I guess, where people sign up and they register. And that way we can, you know, especially as we're ramping back up, we can kind of keep track of the numbers and make sure that it's safe for all the people and also all the animals. So people have to sign up online to to visit. I think you can do this just on your phone, even on the way, assuming there are slots available, but going to the website's the best way to do that. Yeah. And um, how many animals are there in Watkins Glen and in uh, the one in Acton? Between our two farms, we have about 800 animals, and about 700 of those are in uh, Watkins Glen, about 100 in Acton. The Acton farm is much smaller uh, geographically, but it's closer to Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. they have different types of experiences. The one in Watkins Glen is more of an immersion experience where you take this journey to the country. Uh, the one in Acton, uh, oftentimes it could just be like a day trip. Um, and so both of them, though, are open now, thankfully, and we're going to be planning more events and more activities. Every year, as Thanksgiving approaches, we have an event that's the celebration for the turkeys, where there are friends, there are guests of honor, not mm. the main course. And so right. we do this every year, have been doing it since 1986. Uh. And so we will do that uh, this fall, both in Watkins Glen and in Acton, California. One of the fun facts that I discovered in looking at the website is that the Watkin Glen's locate location is right near the the old uh, the Underground Railroad. Yes. Right. Which how appropriate is that? Right. The exploit. I mean, where you were liberating people from exploitation and. Here you're doing the same thing with animals. Yeah, Western New York has been called the burned over district. It was a very sort of an area with a lot of change and challenging of systems. You know, Frederick Douglass, for example, spent a lot of time up in Rochester, New York. Uh, The first women's rights convention was in like the 1840s in Seneca Falls, New York. Mm. Um, Harriet Tubman uh, retired up in Auburn, New York. Uh, So this was going up through New York following the Gord or the Big Dipper, pointing north yeah. uh, up into Canada during during uh, the uh, Civil War, pre-Civil War days. And um, it's a beautiful part. Of, and also people like Brigham Young did a lot of preaching around there before going west. So there's all kinds of things in, that people were talking about and thinking about at the time. And I think now it, it could become a little vegan Mecca, I'm hoping. And uh, recently learned of some new uh, vegan businesses in the area. So it, it could be, a, it's a really beautiful part of the world. And uh, hopefully a lot of people come visit. Can you believe what you started 35 well, years ago? <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful to see this sort of energy and enthusiasm for living compassionately, right? You know, so I mean, I feel very positive about the role I've played, but there's so many others that have played such an important role over the years, right? And um, we've had amazing volunteers come through. In fact, Hilda, our first rescued animal, was named after Hilda, our first intern. And I don't know where she is now, you know? So when we first started, it was really small and there was not much awareness of how it would grow, but uh, we've been very fortunate to have such generous supporters and also volunteers uh, over the last 35 years. And and I can only see that continuing. It makes so much sense. It's such a, a touchstone, right? For, for, for activism, for people to, I think get in touch as you've said throughout this 
this uh, this podcast with what are their true values. Yeah. And 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 you go there and you see it. And I think you're you can't help but be transformed and changed. Yes. I, I think again, it's really aligning our actions with our values. And, and most people are humane. And, and it feels so much better when you start doing that and living that way. Uh, but people need ha- to have tools. Like, how do you do it? And this is where nice vegan foods and uh, access to those is critically important as well. Yeah. And another thing that that, um, that I heard in watching a bunch of these great videos that you have on the website is how the animals become ambassadors. Yes. For other animals, right? Can you explain what that means exactly? Yes. Well, at Farm Sanctuary and at all sanctuaries, we're going to only be able to rescue a very small number of those who really deserve to be rescued. So the animals that come to sanctuaries become ambassadors for the billions who are not able to help. And when people get to know individuals at Farm Sanctuary, they get to recognize that they're not that different than their cat or dog, that pigs love belly rubs, you know, that sheep love to be petted, and that these are social animals that have memories. They they have dreams. I mean, when they're sleeping, you can see them twitching because they're mm-hmm. dreaming. Um, so they're not that different than cats or dogs or ourselves. And when we cause harm to them, um, you know, it's it's something that many people are doing unwittingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that I think hurts our own humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, who's got a real, real soft spot in their heart for all this is Joaquin Phoenix. Oh yeah. Who, who you obviously have a very special relationship with. And he just did a video recently on earth day called Indigo and Liberty. What, what was that about? <laughs> oh, that was such an amazing experience. So I don't know if you saw Joaquin Phoenix's Oscar acceptance speech when he won best actor for Joker. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Yes. And he closed that speech, quoting his brother, his late brother, River, saying, run to the rescue with love and peace will follow. Mm-hmm. The next morning, I get a call that there's a cow and a calf at a slaughterhouse and the slaughterhouse owners let, ready to let him go. And this was with uh, Sean Munson from Earthlings and Amy with LA Animal Slave and Joaquin. And so after watching this speech Sunday night, Monday morning, we're all at the slaughterhouse talking about rescuing these individuals from slaughter. And uh, paperwork had to go through, so they didn't ultimately come to Farm Sanctuary until Tuesday, but it was just a magical thing that occurred. And, um, you know, Joaquin and Rooney are solid animal people, advocates for for vegan living, and um, played a role in in making that happen. And uh, I just feel very fortunate that the timing worked the way it did, and that they're such amazing advocates like like yeah. walking out there. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. No, I think it's fair to say that we are uh, on the precipice of a a new food economy that's based on plants and not animals. Mm-hmm. And um, as we said earlier, you know, we we have to get there as fast as humanly possible because the consequences are um, are not pretty. So speaking of which, Gene. Uh, as we close out, what can people, what are some action steps that people can do if they want to join the movement? I think the first thing is just to sign up for Farm Sanctuary's newsletter at our farmsanctuary.org website. Um, Take action. You know, we have action steps there, like there might be legislation introduced that it would be helpful to write to members of Congress on. Um, So there's policy efforts. Is Is that effective if you actually write? Is that, I mean, is that worth everybody doing that? 
Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, democracy is a participatory sport. So it's important to show up. Now, I'm not going to say that writing is going to immediately lead to a law being passed, yeah. but it really starts building a case that people care about this and politicians do pay attention. So I think we need to be involved in that arena. And at the same time, we can each make a difference with our personal choices every day by choosing to eat plant foods and supporting vegan businesses instead of supporting the factory farming industry. So I think change happens through personal change, but also through systemic change. And that's where getting involved in the legislative process. Um, and there might also be opportunities to do things in a person's own neighborhood. For example, you know, getting a local restaurant to sell vegan foods. Uh, we've done this for years at Farm Sanctuary. In fact, in the 1990s, shortly after we got the farm in Watkins Glen, we went to all the local restaurants asking them to sell vegan food for our visitors. And one of the restaurants that did this was Burger King in the early 90s. First wow. time a veggie burger, the BK Veggie, and it went nationwide in the 90s. And then more recently, now we have you know, the Impossible Whopper. But so talking to local restaurants, local businesses, and encouraging them to adopt uh, more humane practices and, and, and sell more humane products like plant-based foods, for example. So you can do things locally, but also it's important to be involved with, you know, policy at a, at a larger level, I think. Yeah. And how many, have you partnered with other sanctuaries? Oh yeah. We, we uh, have a whole network of sanctuaries that, uh, that adopt animals from us. We adopt animals from them. We work together at placing animals. And so I think, you know, again, at Farm Sanctuary, we have this network, but there might be a sanctuary near where people live. And so visiting those sanctuaries and getting involved in their programming is another way to be active locally. And I think so much change happens really at the local level, at the grassroots level. Um, so getting to know activists in your communities, uh, and then that way, if you go to a local restaurant and ask them to have a vegan item, and then you partner with the local sanctuary or other, other allies in the community, you just start building a movement. So a lot of really good things happen at the local level. Yeah. Are you, have you helped Tracy and John Stewart with the Hock Hoxon Farm Sanctuary? Yeah, so it's it's amazing how the, the Stewarts ended up getting involved with us. Back uh, a few years ago now, um, the Stewarts were in a vacation rental house, and somebody had left a copy of my first book in that rental. Tracy picked the book up, read it, got a hold of us, and then started their own sanctuary. So we worked with them as that was getting underway, and they're now doing their own thing. But I'm very sympathetic and supportive of what they're doing. And, and they're also, in addition to caring for animals, uh, growing food. And, and that I think is really the next phase for farm sanctuaries. We can't rescue all the animals. So in addition to rescuing some who become ambassadors, I think it's important for us also to demonstrate solutions uh, through plant-based agriculture. You know, we, we have to show that there are ways out of this current problem and I think be ex positive examples for solutions. And I think they're doing that at Hawk Hoxon. Yeah. It's interesting when I was looking on your website and I was looking at these just adorable, tiny little, you know, houses that, that you could um, <clears throat> spend the night in. I noticed that there's three books. It looks like that are in each one of these. And you know, obviously there's the farm sanctuary, there's living the farm sanctuary life and uh, do unto animals by Tracy Stewart. So that was beautiful. That's right. That's right. In fact, Tracy helped to design the tiny houses and oh. there are these beautiful, there's beautiful wallpaper in them. And like with foxes and mushrooms, it's got a really amazing nature motif and Tracy designed those. 
Yeah. 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 She's got good taste. <laughs> yes, she does. Absolutely. So everybody that's listening, one of the things I want you to do is go to farmsanctuary.org, check out the website. And if there's one thing that I want you to do, I want you to watch the power of sanctuary. It's a six minute, 28 second video that is amazing. It really is spectacular. You guys did a great job with that. Oh, thank you. Yes. And, and share that with friends too. That's the other thing. Another thing people could do, right, is sharing social media. But yes, no, thank you for that. I think that's an amazing video and it really encapsulates what we're trying to do at the sanctuary. Yep. Yep. So if you want to donate to Farm Sanctuary, if you want to adopt a Farm Sanctuary animal, look into all these things. It's great. Before we close, let me just ask you this. So I saw on your Instagram that you've been foraging for mushrooms. Any luck recently? Yes, we found some chanterelles recently. This has, been a, this has been a fairly uh, thin year compared to last year where we found morels. We found all kinds of mushrooms, uh, but we found some chanterelles and a chicken of the woods recently. So a little bit of luck. Yes. Wow. And where, where were you looking for these mushrooms? Well, I live here in Northern Virginia in Arlington. So there are a number of parks that are forested and usually just walk around the local parks and uh, sometimes have some good luck. Wow, wow. I, I, I actually once went foraging for chanterelles in Portland, Oregon mm. and, uh, and found a bunch. And little did I know that they're like 20 bucks a pound. <laughs> mushrooms are amazing. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love mushrooms. And the, they're, they're, there's a whole life cycle of mushrooms. So the mycelium under the earth, they, they help trees talk and you know there's the plant kingdom there's the animal kingdom and then the fungi kingdom which is more species than ever so it's a real interesting area of uh of of interest right now for me it is it is Whew. great wormhole to go down oh yeah <laughs> um gene you are a beautiful man with a big heart thank you so much for all the work that you're doing to make this planet a better more compassionate place. Thank really. you. And I feel the same way about you, man. And we're, you know, doing our part, right? Every bit helps. And uh, I really am grateful for this opportunity to speak with you. And hopefully we get a chance to see each other again soon. Absolutely. All right. Will you close it out with me? Ready? Peace. Peace. Turn it around. Engine two. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Thanks to people like Gene Bauer and organizations like Farm Sanctuary, we are moving the needle from cruelty to compassion and from indifference to integrity yes being plant strong means eating the best and healthiest foods on the planet but it can also mean being strong in your values and becoming a voice for the voiceless to learn more visit farmsanctuary.org or visit the show notes on the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com thanks so much for listening Thank you for listening to the Plan Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought 
to be true. I'd love to hear about it. Visit PlantStrongPodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.